Hi, folks. Uh, welcome back to On Call with Insignia, where we go on call with leaders innovating the future of Southeast Asia's internet and digital economy, <clears throat> or as we like to call it, ASEAN Innovation. Before we go on call, don't forget to follow our show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to podcasts. And you can follow us for daily content for founders and investors on Twitter at InsigniaVC and Instagram at Insignia underscore VC. Now let's head into the call. So today we have with us a very esteemed guest. For the past few episodes, we've been having founders and investors on the show. And he's going to be our first guest who's more on the research side of things, but has had a really wide and, and deep scope in terms of looking at markets, looking at technology, and everything that's been happening at least in the last 30 years. So we have none other than Paul Schott. He's a veteran equity researcher in the financial services industry. He's also a government policy advisor and a prolific author. So for the past 30 years, he has worked in global equity or bond research in emerging markets. And more recently, he has been working with some of the largest sovereign, pension, mutual, and hedge funds globally as founder and editor of Schott Research. So they provide research on banks, financial technology, and the banking credit algorithms. So he's also authored three books on fintech and digitalization in China. The newest one was published just this year. So congratulations, Paul, on that one. The Digital Transformation of Property in Greater China, which we'll be talking about in, in this podcast. So he has also taught nearly two decades of uh, MBA and graduate programs from Tufts University to HKUSD to Zhejiang University in China. And is a regular source for publications like Wall Street, New York Times, Financial Times, and The Economist. He's also served as an advisor to financial institutions across Southeast Asia including the Thailand SEC, Indonesia's OJK, and Bank Indonesia. So very glad to have him here on the show. It's my first time meeting him, actually. I'm really excited to learn a lot. Hi, Paul. Welcome to the show. How are you doing? Yeah, thank you. Thank you. I'm great. Thanks for letting me be here. Again, congratulations on the book. And I've had the opportunity to actually read a teaser of it <laughs> at the very least. And I'm sure a lot of people would be excited to, to get their hands on the whole thing as well. And from what I've read so far, it's quite a treatise on this particular prop tech sector, which you've mentioned is also the next industry of disruption for fintech. So we'd love for you to share with the audience how you zeroed in, given all these other things that fintech is disrupting, why prop tech in particular, and how you got to writing this book. Yeah, so in 2013, I began to think that there was something going on outside of the banking system. And so I wrote this book called The Next Revolution in Our Credit-Driven Economy. And then many years ago, actually, it's where I met Ying Lantan. We did an all-day session with one of the big banks in Singapore. This was maybe five or six years ago. And we were like, you need to get ready and you need to prepare for what's going to come because if you don't, you're going to be in trouble. And so mm -hmm. I wrote that book in 2014. And I, I happen to think that the, the fintech phenomenon, I think, is sort of we're at the late stages of playing that out kind of, that was very 2019. And then 2020, 21 has sort of been the insure tech. And I think that next year and after that is what my book's about. I think we're going to have a much more, it's going to force all the entrepreneurs that you guys deal with to be saying to themselves, don't be using yesterday's formula on insure tech or fintech, that's gone. The next one is how are we going to create integrated, multi-structured financial products, which basically glue into digitized physical assets and also intellectual property. And so that's the next chapter. And that's why I wrote this book on prop tech, because I got the idea that the evolution, rapid evolution of edge technology, 5G, the rollout of crypto coins from central banks, and the way in which these are going to be placed on new digital rails requires a new understanding of how financial assets glue onto digitized tokenized, tradable assets running along central bank-driven rails 
accessible to cryptocurrencies and can have a multiplicity of uses in terms of working capital, inventories, receivables, insurance products for physical activity, for humans, for transportation, for homes, for buildings, and for ports. That's chapter three. Right, right. Yeah, exactly. And I think it's pretty interesting since the title is is about property, but it has really far-reaching impact the implications of of what you're talking about in in the book. And it's quite interesting what you mentioned that founders should not dwell anymore in the formulas of yesterday. I just want to ask, what is that formula of yesterday and how has it changed? Yeah, so the fintech formula of yesterday is we are going to create a better, faster, cheaper gadget, which is going to make it easier for people to divert away from their traditional banking website and allow them to do some cheaper, better, faster trading of equities, some portfolio investing, some savings products, payments, and e-commerce stuff. And I I think that's like very like five years ago. And so I think even robo-advisory fits into that. I think Mm -hmm. we need to go much, much further into the future. So that's a short answer to your question, but we can go into more detail uh, as we progress. Right, right. And and, uh, another focus of the book is the fact that most of the narrative takes place and focuses on the developments in China. Obviously, you've worked a lot in China, but are there any other particular reasons why you chose China to be the focus of this book? Yeah, so I worked at China Construction Bank for a couple of years. I, I helped to create their global research product for banking services and did some M&A stuff for them in the outside world for their acquisitions. And I would say that other countries need to think really big because China has been thinking really big for the last six years. I mean, basically, China knew that blockchain was going to be big and important. It knew that America was probably going to start pushing back and perhaps using China as a punching bag for their domestic ills. It knew that the integration of of crypto into currency activity was going to be coming and, and it knew that 5G was an important element of this. And so China has put all that in place. And, and so what, what I always say, and I've been doing some work with some of these uh, policymakers in Washington, D.C. recently, if you think that the private sector is going to do this by itself, you're kidding yourself. We're building a new set of digital rails. This is much bigger than the interstate highway system in America. It's bigger than the Apollo program, right, in, in the 1960s and 70s and 80s. We're talking about laying a new combined element of satellite transportation and telecommunication systems all in one unit. And so 5G edge technology, China has it right now when the other countries are very far behind. Now, Singapore has placed itself in that camp. Interestingly, Singapore has had a lot of foresight on this. And the MAS has also been very early on the uptake of a lot of this technology. I remember talking to the MAS years ago, and they were already Mm -hmm. on top of this. And one of the reasons I moved to Singapore was exactly for that reason, because I felt like I was living in Hong Kong for 10, 11 years before that. I just felt like the HKMA just wasn't with the program on this. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of other central banks have just not been with the program. The Federal Reserve has not been with the program on this. The ECB has been very late in the uptake. The Bank of England also. They've been dealing with their own problems. And so this is what we're with right now, the, the wake-up call that countries are going to either have to have their own rail system or they're going to have to jump onto somebody else's, whether it's the U.S. or China or the euro system, again, which is lagging very far behind. Yeah, you mentioned the Singapore being in a unique position, not just 
adopting what China is doing and doing it much earlier than a lot of other markets, but also being within close proximity and having a certain influence in terms of the tech ecosystem within Southeast Asia. But going back to fintech, I mean, you've talked about a lot of companies still lagging behind when we could actually be moving light years ahead in terms of the technology in terms of the way of thinking. And so when it comes to Southeast Asia, the, the conversations a lot around like digital banking, open banking as well. So what are the parallels that you're seeing uh, in Southeast Asia compared to China? And what can we expect in terms of moving forward? Well, I, I think what's going on in Southeast Asia, I, I think many years ago, there were a lot of competitors tied to Alibaba and Tencent and the big five. And, and there had to be a, a massive consolidation. And I think that is where we are right now in Southeast Asia. I think we're in line for a massive consolidation where I think there's like 16 wallets in Malaysia. Well, Malaysia does need 16 wallets. And furthermore, continue to, to, to keep saying that, well, there, there's this unbanked population of 10 or 15% of the population of Southeast Asia that's unbanked. I think a lot of this mythology about the unbanked is a little bit long in the tooth. And C coming along as well and, and, and doing a major, major push into financial services is, is going to put a, a drag on this. And so I, I think if you're a smart sort of mid-level payments, insurance type company, I think you want to be thinking what value can you add to an existing entity like C, because the chances now of going from small to big right now are increasingly falling. The governmental willingness to create national champions is growing, turning a blind eye to create some sort of monopoly or duopoly to consolidate your position in Southeast Asia is becoming more prominent. And that's just because Tencent's doing that. Alibaba's doing that. C's coming in. Tokopedia and Gojek, that's a major, major merger. So it causes everybody else to have to react. And so if you're not looking to join hands or merge or become larger by buying something else, I think the chances are, are pretty good for failure. So right. we're now beyond the invention stage. We're in the consolidation phase right now, for sure. Mm -hmm. And if you're not consolidating or leapfrogging to a new type of integrated crypto-based, blockchain-based, getting ready for a large-scale tokenization of things beyond silly payments and e-commerce and savings and investment products, you're dead. I think it's a period of leapfrogging, consolidating, or die. I would say even in terms of how these fintech stars who think about exit options, it will generally be sort of like a gravity well, just like getting acquired, for example, by these bigger players. Yeah. And I was thinking recently, there's a lot of egos at stake, of course, but I, I think that mergers of equals to become large enough to be a target of various differentiated products makes sense at this point. Like I said, if you're not merging or consolidating, Getting market share is very, very difficult. Those guys have got tremendous firepower to burn money to gain market share. C is going to gain market share through its gamers, which it already has. And yeah, yeah. Tokopedia and Gojek is going to be a whole new ballgame. And Grab is going to just raise a ton of money. And so trying to compete with that is a fool's game. And speaking of something that we talk about in terms of untapped markets often in 
our blog and insignia is sort of the the unbanked and something interesting you mentioned is this mythology about the unbanked i just wanted to ask you a bit more about that to explain that a little bit more and especially with a lot of developments happening in singapore with regards to blockchain and 5g and financial technology how do you reconcile that with what's happening in rural areas and, and the unbanked and do you see it actually getting adopted in those areas or will there always be that space there that is left untouched Yeah, so I'm a very big fan of looking at financial services and basically receivables and inventory and working capital for small and medium-sized enterprises in all sectors. That's the golden hoard. For me, trying to find one more unbanked individual is just uh, to, to me it's not exciting and you're going down the credit curve for each individual marginal new mm-hmm. uh, person. But Link Logist just listed in Hong Kong last week and Link Logist is a really interesting company. I'm not a great fan because it was listed very expensively. So it's great for the sellers on the private equity side, bad for the public equity holders. But it's a riveting, fascinating company that basically uses blockchain to aid SMEs in any part of any village in the region in terms of receivables, inventories, payables, working capital structures. And it's a fascinating company. And that's the kind of thing where China's way ahead here. So we're talking about the next part of the world is combining digitized activity of working capital, the movement of semi-finished goods along a logistical supply chain and funding those movable fungible objects via the blockchain. This mm-hmm. is really interesting technology. That's right. where Asia needs to go really quick. Where is the link logist of Southeast Asia? We don't need another payments company. We don't need another robo thingy. We don't need another insure tech. We need a link logist for Southeast Asia. That's what we need. It is really thinking big in terms of integrated receivables, integrated working capital, integrated inventory systems. That's what we need in Southeast Asia. And I think you really have to up your game in order to stay competitive because a lot of people are using PowerPoint presentations from 2019 that's not good enough. And I guess to all our listeners here we have some homework to do and really look at at these companies that are leapfrogging way ahead of of what's happening here in the region. I just want to go back again to another topic the, the US China tensions and and sort of the impact here in Southeast Asia. When you talk about these tensions happening, do you see this as a good thing for Southeast Asia? What I think is happening and again I I went to the Fletcher School of International Affairs. I did my international business degree there. We spent a tremendous amount of time in these topics when I was there in the 1980s I worked at the White House and so I think I understand the Cold War very well. Mm-hmm. But I would say to you the same people who are in power now grew up in the Cold War. It's what they know. And so I think China is going to be a replay of the Cold War. But a lot more subtle. It's going to be zero hour bots. It's going to be the secret negotiations to reduce these risks of turning off each other's traffic control systems or water pumping systems or electricity grids but I, i think that america pretty much only knows how to do that and so it's going to take a cold war thing now what does that mean it means that during the cold war india was amazingly good india was fantastic at playing both sides mm-hmm. really well so india got two of everything india got migs which were soviet jets plus they got f16s and so everyone's going to play both sides really well and that's just what happens during a cold war and, and so that's where the the world is sort of tr- trying to choose sides right now and america has been very good on soft power and propaganda and you know hollywood and all that jazz and china's quite poor at that 
at the moment. It's getting better, but this is a propaganda game. It's a social network game. It is a, a news game, but it's also a technology game. And right now, China's way ahead in the technology game in 5G, in edge computing, in the digital currency, in BSN, in many other areas. Mm-hmm. And and you talked about technology being a part of it as well. I, I wanted to ask, with China being ahead, do you see it trickling into Southeast Asia of what they've been able to do? Considering that we just said that Southeast Asia is largely still behind in terms of what companies are doing. And how do you see this competition between uh, these two hegemonies reflecting into tech competition here? So I think that the one country that is carrying the water really well in Asia, in terms of keeping up with China, especially in terms of the BSN, the digital currency, the blockchain initiatives, Singapore. Singapore has done a great job sort of keeping up on this. And the Monetary Authority of Singapore and its various research arms that I keep in touch with have done a great job. And they started this many years ago. I went to Jakarta three years ago to really pound the table on blockchain and nothing happened. And I think Thailand is is quite far ahead in this as well. Thailand's doing some very interesting initiatives. I think Philippines is trying as well, but Singapore is really ahead in Southeast Asia, I I would say. And then of course, Vietnam is a real area of of, of technology initiatives, but its system is still very primitive. Hey there, folks. If you want to continue listening to my conversation with Paul Schultz, head on to the next episode. Stay on the line with us for more conversations with our founders and investors in the region. Until the next call, I am Paolo Aquino and this has been On Call with Insignia Ventures.